religious freedom will only survive if we know how to defend it. That means knowing the arguments, knowing history, and knowing what the church teaches about the free practice of our faith. As a civil rights lawyer, I focus my attention on the legal foundation for religious freedom. And as a Catholic, it's important to know what the church says about all this, not just the law. Let's be blunt. Our opponents don't care what our churches teach. That makes it all the more important for us to know the fundamental teachings. If someone challenged you tomorrow to a debate on religious freedom, would you have the tools to defend your belief? What does the church teach about all this and how it's relevant to our everyday lives? This is the topic of today's discussion. Welcome to Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati Bayer, Director of the Conscience Project. I'm joined today by Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and D.C. Bureau Chief of EWTN News. Welcome, Matthew. Great to be with you. Our guest today is Professor Joseph Capizzi, Executive Director of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. Before we get started, tell us a little about the Institute and what have been some of the happy surprises in serving as its Executive Director. Thank you, Andrea. The Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University started only six years ago. What we do in the Institute is we try to bring together faculty, students at the graduate and undergraduate levels with the purpose of trying to inject into our culture the principles of Catholic social teaching and to serve human flourishing. I think the biggest surprise has been how fast we've grown. We've just really tapped into something I think that was needed in our culture, particularly in Washington, D.C., and we've really exploded. And a lot of this is due to our partners, people who've helped support us, all of the faculty on campus and around the country who've affiliated with us, and the energy of students. Young people are really hungry for this kind of stuff right now, and uh, we've been reached out to by students at Catholic and outside of Catholic, and it's just been a blessing uh, to be a part of this. No, that's wonderful. I've been following what you've been doing, and I would really encourage all of our listeners to learn more about the Institute and visit their website at ihe.catholic.edu. Now, on to the task at hand. We want to start off with a helpful resource for understanding Catholic teaching on religious freedom, and the best starting place is the Declaration on Religious Freedom, Dignitatis Humanae, promulgated by Pope Paul VI in 1965, even before I was born. Now, Matthew has agreed to tell us a little bit about the history of the Declaration, and Matthew, can you just take it away? One of the, the big questions uh, that the Second Vatican Council grappled with, as St. John XXIII was asking, was that conversation, that dialogue between the Church and the modern world. And one of the key aspects of that was uh, obviously the rise of the, the question of religious freedom, of religious liberty, but also the relationship between the church and the religions of the world. And flowing from that, uh, you have names like John Courtney Murray and others who became key figures in drafting the document, was a question of how we can look at the development of the doctrine of recent popes on the rights of the human person and also what they referred to as a constitutional order of society. And this was uh, a key question for the Council because of that relationship of the Church with the modern world. And as a result of that, a lot of discussion went back and forth. But the document that emerged from the Council was very significantly supported by over 2,300 uh, of the bishops when they voted positively for this document, uh, with only 70 uh, rejecting it. And it became then, uh, as we have seen in the years after, one of the bedrocks of the Church's approach to human dignity in the modern world, but also so much of the Church's interreligious dialogue and also its ecumenical. 
the document starts off, I think, very beautifully in impressing upon the sense of dignity of the human person on the conscience of contemporary man to act on their own judgment, not driven by coercion, but motivated by a sense of duty. Professor Capizzi, let's talk about how this starting place is in harmony with sacred tradition and church doctrine. I think the first thing that we need to remind ourselves of is that the teaching on religious liberty is really rooted in the Catholic understanding of the nature of the human being. And this is a conception of the human being that has been taught from the very first moments of, of, uh, of our faith, that we are created in God's image and likeness. And the elements that speak of this imaging of God that's in the human person are freedom, right? Free will and rationality, you know, the use of reason. Therefore, our approach to God has to be in accordance with that essence of our nature, right? So we have to approach God as these beings bearing his image, and and that means we have to approach him freely out of our own reasoning about what we understand to be true. To do it in any other way, to be coerced into faith um, or to be deceived into believing certain things would be an abuse first of our nature as, uh, as this kind of being. So I think the beginning that's timeless in our tradition is that we have this nature. Another element of the nature, of course, too, is that we are ordered towards gods. We are beings by our nature who are ordered to seek the truth, and that truth ultimately rests you know, fully in God himself. So it's not merely a freedom, right, from coercion, a freedom to seek God, but it's also speaking of this nature of ours to seek God. So there's this obligation that's at the basis of this as well. So this idea of religious freedom, which has become so important in our conversation, not just domestically but internationally, the Declaration itself repeatedly comments and states that the right to religious freedom is, quote, is within due limits and that it must not be impeded, provided, as it says again, that just public order be observed. Uh, it later, number seven, highlights uh, the regulatory norms like the moral principle of personal and social responsibility and respect for the rights of others, one's own duties, and the common welfare of all. You, you've touched on the, the central aspect of the common good here. But what is a correct way to understand these limits uh, so as to not swallow up the right entirely? Yeah. It's a great question, and the beginning of the question, I think, is to remind ourselves that the principle of this right that's being articulated in the document is a freedom from coercion by essentially political governance, right? So this is a document that is describing the right in a political context. So the political context both shapes the freedom from coercion, right, the immunity that we expect, uh, but it also shapes the ordering of it towards the political community itself, right? So the expression of religion in a community has to serve the community as well, right? It has to help build up the community, conduce to its flourishing. And there are times, as we know from our own history, from history of other countries where you can see that expressions of religious liberty, right, which on the one hand are rooted in the person, can actually damage the political community. Political order then uh, is a kind of limiting principle for its expression. You can't, for instance, do things that are untrue when they are damaging to the political community, even if it's held in somebody's conscience. That's just, I think, the beginning is that this is a political context or to which this document is speaking. Professor, you give me a perfect segue because one of my favorite sentences in the Declaration, and I've got the Declaration in front of me, underlined and asterisks and, you know, lots of arrows pointing to it, is this wonderful sentence that says, the truth cannot impose itself except by virtue of its own truth. And throughout the Declaration, there are many points 
that go to this point that the government respect for religious freedom doesn't diminish our confidence as Catholics that the Catholic Church is the custodian of the truth. How has that played out, especially among Catholics, in understanding that promoting respect for religious freedom doesn't undermine our understanding that we're on the right team here? You know, I think that's actually a, a, a complicated question or maybe a, an answer with a kind of negative aspect to it. The concern from the church's perspective, the theoretical concern you're, you're pointing to is indifferentism, that when we say everyone has a freedom to pursue the truth, that we're saying something like it doesn't really matter so long as you're just sort of acting out of conscience and in your conscience you're pursuing your truth, right, which is the way we speak as Americans, then, then all's good, right? And it's just good to be a person who's sort of, you know, doing his or her thing in a conscientious way. And that conduces to this notion, right, that this doesn't really matter. And I think even Catholics have fallen prey at times to thinking that it's really kind of a relativizing idea, mm-hmm. you know, that all these faiths, it, you know, they're all more or less the same thing. Um, and Catholicism, you know, maybe it's ethnically or otherwise, culturally, you know, kind of my thing, but it's not really a truth claim. And, th- and the church is completely rejecting that notion. Mm-hmm. This accompanies the document's claim that we do have this freedom, but it is for the truth. There is a truth. This is not a subjective conception. It's a conception, again, rooted in the nature of us as beings created by this kind of God who spoke to us and delivered his son to us for our redemption, that is true. Nonetheless, we recognize that other people do have freedom to understand the truth on its terms, not our terms. And that's, that's I think, part of what that beautiful sentence is that you're getting to, that government activity, deceptive activity, you know, by church people, by others, can actually be an impediment to people confronting the truth on its own. Yeah, so the idea of uh, advancing the common good, you know, the catechism names three essential elements of the common good in our age. Uh, The respect for the person, the well-being and development of the group or social community of which the person is a member, and significantly, peace. Why those three elements? I make the case that essentially what the, the catechism is doing there in following Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 26, um, which is really the sort of canonical paragraph where you see this conception of the common good arising, is it's trying to speak to human personhood in the way we understand it. On the one hand, bearer of this certain kind of dignity, this special dignity as the image and likeness of God, rooted in community. So communities are not accidental to us. They are not merely voluntary associations, you know, that we enter into. We are actually deeply rooted into community. And bearers also have rights in our contemporary context. As such, the common good needs to be this thing that helps humans flourish as individuals and also in their communities. It's very interesting. I I think that the church has been such great moral authority for many years. And if we focus on the common good, right now we're coming out of such challenging times, not only in our country, but across the world. And some are seeing more light than others as the pandemic is hopefully coming towards an end. But the common good and notions of the common good continue to kind of percolate up and these decisions that are being made by state actors and and especially by the church as well. When we're talking about the common good, I think it might be helpful to go back to some of those first principles, especially how the church has defined the common good and the dual purpose that the, the common good allows for human flourishing as well as protects social groups. 
Can you help us figure out where are we heading forward and what are some of the challenges that the church faces and that we're facing as believers? I think there's at least two challenges. One was identified, I think, in the document itself, in um, Dignitatis Humanae, right, which is essentially, right, emerging out of the context of totalitarianisms, states and individuals in the 20th century. The idea there is that the church was expressing the, you know, the kind of, or emphasizing this deep freedom from coercion that was necessary to check the power of states uh, as it impressed itself upon individuals. On the other hand, our age faces atomization. Totalitarianism is a specter looming in the background, but the, the real challenge to us is individualism, you know, atomization, the sense of alienation, loneliness, and so on. And that's emphasized in these documents as well, but it needs to be re-emphasized that we are social beings and our religious experience, the religion that we avow and that we live, is a social religion. And what Pope Francis has uh, said in Fratelli Tutti and elsewhere is that we need religion to bring itself into the public square and invigorate the public square. This is not a religion that is to be privatized, just kept at home, that that religion will actually ennoble the state, will actually help the state flourish. Now, unlike the Declaration on Religious Freedom, Fratelli Tutti is not short. It's not. (laughs) No, not at all. Um, And and Matthew, I think, is one of the country's leading experts in in having combed through the document and how it relates to religious freedom and how it relates to the challenges that we're facing. Matthew, what what are some of the things that pop out at you? Well, I think if we're looking at uh, the the key word for Fratelli Tutti, and and the Holy Father is very deliberate in this, is the use of the term solidarity. It's just the idea of fraternity of everyone working together. But he uh, has an important comment uh, in this latest of his uh, writings, I mean, this was just last year, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, that when states deny their own transcendent good as a service to God, uh, he he says the force of power takes over and each person tends to make full use of the means at his disposal in order to impose his own interests or his own opinion with no regard for the rights of others. We're looking at this from the standpoint, especially of Catholic social teaching, the concept of solidarity, uh, which is one of the pillars of Catholic social teaching, just is redolent throughout this document. Now, one of the things that I enjoy about, I don't know, I'm such a, a nerd in reading all of these things, but it, it seems like there, there are always opportunities and challenges. And thinking about religious freedom and the teachings of the church, there's a, an opportunity, right, for the individual to seek the truth. It's an obligation that we have. It's kind of embedded into us. It's written into our DNA. We have that obligation. We need to do that. And the state needs to allow us to do that, not put any kind of coercion and not put any kind of barriers. So the state should be encouraging our pursuit of the truth. At the same time, we need to be wary. And the state is a threat. And the church is aware of those two identities, I guess, of of the government. But we also have non-state actors that have come on the scene in a powerful way and wield that power that Matthew was mentioning. Professor Capizzi, what do we do now? We're not just dealing with state actors who wield the power of a government and an authority. And it's not just groups like ISIS that are presenting a threat to religious freedom, but we've got groups like big tech, big abortion. What do you think individual Catholics and where do you think the Catholic Church is heading on facing this new challenge? 
So individual Catholics first. I think the, the first responsibility, of course, is that they fulfill their obligation that is rooted in their nature to, to seek the truth, right, and to do it in a way that is appropriate to the dignity of the truth itself. And, and that's, in a way, a much harder challenge, you know, than, than what I just said. You know, I can articulate that, you know, in, in about five seconds. But, but, it, but it really is a serious challenge, and we have to bear that um, in, in public uh, as well, right? And that's a challenge to many, many Catholics, right, as they enter the public, is that they often will leave their faith behind um, and think that it's irrelevant to their community. But, but the, the popes are saying it's not. It's not, not merely relevant. It's deeply needed. So I think that's number one. Number two, in terms of the church herself, this is the challenge of our age, really, uh, how the church can reconfigure herself, both in terms of pulling herself together as a community, because we, we know all about all the fractions within it, uh, and then support its leadership in every respect as it tries to assert the liberty of the church. This is the one element that we have not spoken about, mm-hmm. which is indignitatis humanae, and really is the is the root of all this, is the Church asserts her freedom to speak to the world, to be an element in the world that resists the totalizing impulses, both of the state and big tech, big abortion, all of these other things that are essentially trying to redefine human lives for us in a totalizing way. We had a very interesting conversation before getting together today, uh, Professor, where I made a naive comment about oftentimes, especially in the U.S., individuals that stand up for religious freedom tend to come from our evangelical brothers and sisters or even from other faith traditions, but you don't often see an individual Catholic standing up against their local, their state, or even the federal government. We see it in the beautiful example of religious orders like the Little Sisters of the Poor and the Sisters of Mercy that are uh, pushing back against some of the demands of the Affordable Care Act. And we see it in a very important decision by the Supreme Court involving the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and their foster care ministry. Those are organized Catholics. And you had an interesting take on it. Yeah, I I think it's a strength of ours, right, as Catholics, is that our first move is not to assert ourselves as individuals, right, but in a way to look around us to our community and say, what am I a part of that supports these values that I'm trying to speak out uh, in, a, in a fraught moment. So the first moves of the, of the best Catholics of our traditions, think of St. Joan, are really to sort of look around and say, where is the rest of my community? Uh, and we bring the community with us. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a strength. I don't think it's a weakness. It's a strength of the Catholic approach. It's complemented by our evangelical brothers and sisters who stand often as individuals uh, with us. But, I, 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 yeah, I, I would view this as an asset. Looking at that uh, landscape at the community, uh, we are seeing a, a, almost a fundamental transformation of many aspects of American life and culture. We, we have pluralism, of course. We also have multiculturalism. We have secularism. We've got uh, what uh, Pope Benedict XVI referred to as a dictatorship of relativism in so many ways. And we're seeing as well this, this push for the privatization of religion. Uh, and here we are d- discussing religious liberty. How do we navigate all of these different currents uh, that are taking place in culture and still be the significant part of culture and life in, in this country and around the world that we need to be. Our history is long, right? It's 2,000 plus years long. And 
we have so many instances in our in our tradition that we can pull on and be inspired by. So think of the martyrs uh, and. Again, the formations of religious communities that have happened and reinvigorated Europe, right? Teresa of Avila, again, you know, this powerful woman storming through Europe, reinvigorating its culture. And essentially what we, what we have as believers is hope. We are not people of despair, and, and hope ought to give us energy that no matter what we do, the victory is assured. We are merely witnesses to its to its assurance by Christ, and, and we bear ourselves with hope in the moment. I think that's the deepest thing that as Catholics we have to remind ourselves of, is that what happens outside matters, but it doesn't matter in an ultimate way. And, you know, we are really moved by this conviction that Christ has, has gained the victory for us. You know, I'm very grateful for your joining us, and especially in Matthew as well, because you've been able to bring some of your knowledge and your expertise, and at the same time bring us to this notion that we're first not alone, and we're not facing this for the first time. This has been a challenge that that the Church has always confronted, and we should feel encouraged by our history and that we've got behind us these great saints and martyrs um, as examples of fortitude and as confidence in the truth. And also look to some of these brilliant gems that we have. Pope Francis has reminded us and reminded the world community that religion isn't subculture, but religion is part of culture. And that should give us the confidence to know that our faith isn't something just kept within the boundaries of the parish parking lot, but it's something that we bring out into the community unabashedly, you know, unafraid, and with that kind of joy that I think the world is, is thirsting for. To pick up on what you're saying, I think one of the, the, the questions uh, heading into that Second Vatican Council began our conversation today on looking at Dignitatis Humanae, the relationship of church and state, the relationship of the church with the modern world. And here we are now 50 years on, and I'd love as a closing He's question to Professor Capizzi is, where do we go from here in some ways uh, in understanding the wisdom of the council, but also in understanding the continuity of the wisdom that that document reflected? I don't think we know. Let's put it that way. Uh, and we have to remind ourselves the church is a global church, right? and the experiences that we, that we are most familiar with, that are most intimate to us as Americans, are really different from the experiences of Catholics in China, mm-hmm. in Africa, you know, in Central America, and of course in the Middle East. In each of those situations that I just named, right, we're talking about very different relationships of the churches to government. And their future in those places is as fraught as our future here, you know. So it's hard to predict. But again, as Andrea just said, we have resources in our tradition that can handle all of it, you know, that we can handle being an underground church, right? We can handle being an actively, physically persecuted church, like in the Middle East. We can handle being even a church challenged by secularization and atomization and materialism, right, that is challenging us in the United States it's a more comfortable challenge, let's be honest with ourselves, mm-hmm. right, than the, you know, the ones we described before. But, but nonetheless, it's a challenge, right, because we're talking about our souls uh, and, and the souls of our children and our grandchildren and so on. And God only knows, in a sense, uh, Matthew. It, it's a great, great question. But, but the Church has the resources in these documents that we've been speaking about to deal with it in all its manifestations. Well, and one thing's for sure, we are made for these times. We were placed in this moment with all of these challenges, and we've got the tools available 
for us. And what our, what our calling is, is to live it out in faith and in confidence. Many thanks. This has been uh, a fantastically insightful conversation and discussion with uh, EWTN News' Matthew Bunsen and Professor Joseph Capizzi from Catholic University's Institute for Human Ecology. Thanks to WMET 1160 AM here in Washington for graciously allowing us to use their studio. It's a delight to interact with people in person. Uh, and we really hope that you can feel how exciting it's been for all of us to join together. And most of all, thank you for joining us for this episode of Religious Freedom Matters. I'm Andrea Pachati Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. Follow me on Twitter at Bayer Pachati. You can read more from The Conscience Project at conscience-project.org. And please tell your friends about what you've learned on the show and join us for our next episode. New episodes will be posted on the websites of the National Catholic Register and the Conscience Project. We're looking forward to talking to you again soon.